0: The text is the fourth chapter of the book of Ephesians. I invite you to turn to that uh, chapter. And I want to read um, some selected verses from it. I won't read the whole chapter, although it really is the text. And I'll begin reading verse 1, and uh, we'll take a shot at this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one faith, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Verse 17, This I say therefore, and affirm, together with the Lord, With greediness. Verse 31 and 2. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. I think you probably have observed the repetition in Paul's writings, at least in this chapter, concerning the the term or the the words walk in a manner worthy. Now the word walk there is not, of course, referring to mobility, about putting one foot before the other and getting from one place to the other. He's talking about... um, manner of life or lifestyle. It's a term that refers to one's style of life, manner of life. And he says in verse 1 that the duty of the Christian is to live in a manner that is worthy of the Lord, worthy of His name. If you've read anything at all about um, Alexander the Great, you've probably read that he was a strict disciplinarian, very tough on his men. You probably even read of the illustration that one time there was a soldier in his uh, army that was pretty uh, uh, reckless and undisciplined and raucous. And one night he summoned that boy to his tent. And you can imagine the thoughts this young man had as he made his way to Alexander the Great's tent. When he went inside, he uh, bid him to sit down and He stared at him for a while, just looking a hole through him with his eyes. And then he asked, young man, what is your name? And the young man said, the same as yours, sir, Alexander. And his reply was, then young man, you need to either change your name or change your ways. What Paul seems to be saying to the Ephesians is this. You either, if you're a Christian, you either need to change your name or you need to change your manner of life. That was, his, that was very important to the apostle. In fact, in each of his epistles, he just lets that be known right up front. He says to the Colossians in the first chapter, you need to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. To the Philippians in the first chapter, he says, you need to order your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. And in the second chapter of 1 Thessalonians, he says, you need to walk in a manner that is worthy of the God who called you into His kingdom. There is nothing quite as important to the Apostle Paul than that. You either walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, or you change your name, because the reputation of Jesus Christ is bound up in the conduct of, of his believers. You remember when Jesus was in that, uh, with his disciples in the upper room and there is this upper room discourse. And Jesus is talking to them about going to the Father. And Philip raises his hand and says, Sir, if you'll just show us the Father, it will suffice. And Jesus' response was this, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. You want to know what the Father looks like? Look at me, for I am the truth revealed about God. In another place, he said, As the Father has sent me, even so send I you. In other words, just as Jesus is the revealed truth about God, the believer is to be the revealed truth about Jesus. So what Paul seems to be saying is this, If Jesus could say, look at me and see the Father, it ought to be said of you as a believer that one could say, look at me and you see Jesus. I wonder if we are really telling the truth about Christ. As Luther said, now that you have experienced Jesus, you're to go out and be Jesus to others. I wonder if we're giving the revealed truth about Christ. I heard the story of a man who was a wino, a derelict, living on the streets of the Bowery, a a wino, a hopeless alcoholic. And one night he drifted into a rescue mission and was profoundly converted. He left his lifestyle behind. He straightened up, he dressed up, he quit drinking, he got a job. But he'd go back to the rescue mission to help those poor men who were bound up in alcoholism. He cleaned up the toilets and he wiped up their vomit. And he did so with a smile of love and grace. His name was Joe. Everybody knew Joe and everybody knew what he was about. One night the leader of the rescue mission was preaching a sermon and the men were all lined up out there like logs stacked up in a, in a, in a line and their heads were on their chest in half-drunken stupas and half-asleep. But while this man preached, one of the men's heads snapped up like a light went on. And he went forward and he began to pray, Lord, make me like Joe. Lord, make me like Joe. And the preacher leaned over and said, I think you need to be praying, Lord, make me like Jesus. And the old derelict lifted up his face with a quizzical look on it. He said, is he like Joe? I don't know Jesus, but I know Job. It ought to be said of everyone, he said, that they could look at you, size you up, and say, that's Jesus to me. Now what are the characteristics of a manner of life like that? I think there are three. First, to live in a manner worthy of the Lord, worthy of his name, is to walk in harmony is to walk in harmony. Now that's not the first thing that's said in the fourth chapter, but it is the theme of the chapter. That we preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is nothing quite as important to the Christian witness than harmony among God's people. When Jesus prayed one of His last prayers on earth, He thanked the Father that they had this relationship that was perfect, this oneness, this unity. And in the book of Acts, watch me, in the book of Acts, if you read it carefully, you'll find a statement over and over again like this. They were all together in one accord with one heart and one mind and one spirit. And every time the Spirit of God came mightily on the church and there was an ingathering of lost people, it always was accompanied with a statement. And they were all together in one accord. Now there is a difference between unity and union. Somebody said that you could tie the tails of two old tomcats together and hang them over a fence, over a, over a clothesline. They'd be in union, but they wouldn't be in unity. I have a feeling that you can have a church with people in it that are all together, but they're not together. You know what I'm saying? They can be, there can be a union, but no unity. And it is at this point, my friend, where I believe the church faces its greatest scandal the lack of unity in the fellowship. For even the most ignorant unbeliever knows that the mark of a Christian is his love for another and the fact that they can get along. And if there ever was a place where people got along, it ought to be in the church of God. I, uh, I don't know if you've been reading or not, but you've been under a rock if you hadn't heard what's happened in... Southern Baptist Convention this week. In our seminary at uh, Fort Worth, the largest theological seminary in the United States, about the third largest seminary in the world, the president got fired this week. The president of the seminary was called in and fired. If that wasn't bad enough, um, they changed the lock on his door like We got something unclean in here, and we need to get rid of it. And ceremoniously, they just kicked him out. And I'm looking at that, and I'm grieving in my heart that I would ever see the day when that would happen as a convention of Baptists. And in the halls of Southwestern Seminary where I used to walk and, and, and some of us used to study, they have armed guards over there. Can you believe this? Like in, like in Russia. I mean, they got armed guards over there to keep the peace. And I'm thinking to myself that the average unbeliever who opens up his newspaper and reads that is thinking to himself, now, is that a manner worthy of the Lord? I'm not talking about that we think alike or even believe alike. What I'm saying is this, that where there is unity, a person is willing he believes that his wishes and his desires are worth sacrificing for the unity of the body and he say two things about that harmony it is produced by the holy spirit he said it's we preserve the unity of the spirit The unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, this unity is what the Holy Spirit produces. In other words, where the Holy Spirit is free to do His office work, where the Holy Spirit is in control, you're going to find find unity among people in relationships. You agree with that? I mean, occasional amen wouldn't hurt. That's it. I had to get my own, but... This unity is produced by the Holy Spirit, and it's preserved by the believer. We preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, it would be foolish for us to say, Lord, make us one. That's our job. And that word endeavor there means to cherish and to prize as one's most prized possession. Now, watch this. We have a lot lot of wonderful things around here for which to be grateful. We have one of the best facilities of any church anywhere. I mean, I bring my friends up here from Texas and I take them around. They're just in awe of our facilities. I take them up to the TV room and they just stand amazed at what we have. I mean, some folks came over from K10 one time and were amazed at our studio. We have pretty good staff. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't haven't heard anybody in awe of them, but I, I, I am. I mean, the preacher is not that bad. You can do better, but I mean, he's not that bad. Huh. Didn't hear any amens on that one either. <laughs> I mean. We got a lot of things to cherish. Let me tell you what is thy prized possession, and we must cherish it, and that is the unity we have in this church. That is the key. And whatever it takes... Whatever needs to be sacrificed in order to preserve the unity that is produced by the Holy Spirit in the bond of Christ, we must do it. For that is a manner, walking in the manner worthy of the Lord. Second, it's to walk in humility. Now, the way to harmony is the way of humility. Somebody, after the early service, we had this huge early service, and i was talking somebody in sunday school and we were just kind of discussing this is that how do you get harmony how does harmony happen in a church well the way to harmony is the way is the way of humility for you can't keep what is in verse three unless you obey what is in verse two and that's to walk in humility now i don't normally do this but i i want to do this this morning i want to just take these words and go as far as i can Either the services, I'm getting this uh, shorter amount of time or I'm preaching longer. I mean, I've never had one, But I, w- I want to tell you word for word, and I must look at this, what it means to walk in humility. Before I say this, I need to say something. And that is, is that what he describes here is absolutely abhorrent, was absolutely abhorrent to the heathen world. I mean... When he described what it means to walk in harmony and to walk in humility, the heathen world gagged on it. This is not what you'd find in a magazine, in an airline. It's not what you'd learn if you want to be a CEO. I mean, this is absolutely abhorrent to a, to a humanistic mind, what he's going to describe here. But it's the way to walk worthily of the Lord. First, he says, humility. And the word there means lowliness of mind. It has to do with attitude. It begins, humility begins with what you think about yourself. Bill Hybels has a marvelous book entitled Descending into Greatness. Did you get the title? He said that you don't climb the ladder to greatness, you descend the ladder to greatness. The way to go up is to come down. And that book is, a, an, is an exposition of the second chapter of, of Philippians where it says something like this. Let this mind be in you, which was in Christ Jesus, who, though being in the form of God, did not think being equal with God was something to be grasped selfishly. But he humbled himself and made himself of no reputation. One translation has it. He made himself nothing. Now what he was saying is, is that Jesus in this humility of mind, relinquished the divine prerogatives of his life, his rights. Now this is the Jesus who created everything. This is the Jesus that was the center of the cosmos, that was the object of praise. This is the Jesus before whom angels bowed and cried, holy, and he gave it up. He had to start using doors and riding mules. He had to start learning the Hebrew alphabet, a letter at a time. He started saying yes, sir, to his earthly father, and yes, ma'am, to his mother, whatever you want, mom. And he exchanged praise for curses and spit. And Paul said, that's the way you ought to think. In honor preferring one another. On another place he said, that each, let each one of you consider the other more important than himself. It's the opposite of this grasping for control and power that Adler calls the one great human obsession and what Kissinger calls the great aprodisiac. Strange term. And he, and he, and he says the second is Gentleness, it's the picture of a wild horse that's been domesticated under the control of its master. Doesn't lose any of its power or its spirit. It's just that it operates not on the basis of how it feels but on the basis of the master's control. When a person is gentle, he doesn't lose his power or his spirit. He just doesn't operate on the basis of how he feels. He just operates on the basis of his master's control. And he uses the term patience and forbearing one another. Now watch this. They go together. The word patience there means to accept the failures of others. Have you ever noticed how hard it is to accept somebody else's failure, especially if it impacts us? I got up the other morning and went jogging. I have to remind you of that every now and then. <laughs> I came in real sweaty and stinking. And my wife said, uh, did you jog? I said, yes. She said, well, we don't have any water. I said, oh, <laughs> You're going to be blessed. So I got on the phone and I called the city just to make sure they knew we didn't have any water out west of town. And this guy answered, poor guy. I mean, I could tell by the tone of his voice that he'd been bombarded with calls. And this is what he said kind of with a pleading voice. He said, sir... We're doing the best we can. And I'm thinking, I know it, my man. And I'm just thinking, I bet that guy has been called. I see some guilty looks. (laughs) I bet that guy has been taken to task because we just can't stand somebody else's failure if it impacts us. Impatient. And that word forbearing, you know what that word means? Now listen to this. It means to support another person who fails, who has done wrong. Let me ask you this. How do you feel about it when you hear somebody's done wrong? I mean, do you sit in judgment on them? Do you condemn them? Is the first response to criticize them? The Apostle Paul said, when one among you is overtaken in a fault, let he who is spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to himself lest he be tempted. And what he was saying was this, that when you see somebody else fall, and often we do, our response ought not to be judgmental or critical, understanding that that could be us. We restore them. That's what it means to walk in humility. And let me tell you something. When you have the control of the Holy Spirit in a church fellowship, and you have people with an attitude like Jesus had to surrender your prerogatives for the sake of another, and you begin to, in a gentle way, support the failures of others in a patient and loving way, let me tell you what will happen. This church won't hold the folks who will want to come here. That's what the world's looking for. Somebody who will love them in a spirit of humility. Unless I get all worked up, i got to go to point three. Settle down a little bit. Walk in harmony. Walk in humility. Walk in holiness. When I was a kid growing up, I thought holiness referred to a group of folks that Met on the other side of the tracks. <laughs> My dad used to talk about, oh, those are holiness. And they wore hair upon top of their head. And, and they wore long dresses to school. And they stayed till midnight Sunday night in worship service. We used to make fun of them. Holiness, we called them. What I've learned the hard way is that's what each one of us is to be holy and holiness is not a weird group of folks as we thought they were weird they're not holiness is belonging to God and becoming like the God to whom we belong now verses 31 and 32 describe what that's like it ties it all together it talks about what we take up and what we give up And this is what it says. Holiness is this. It is, read it with me. Let all bitterness be put aside. That that word bitterness there means long-standing resentment. It means to brood over past injustices. It means to hold on to old hurts. He's talking about people who just won't let go of their pain, their hurts, their, the way they've been wronged. It, he's talking about folks who just can't get past the fact that they were offended, who just can't let it go, who brood over it, even nurture it, and when the embers die down, stoke them. Um, I guess you've heard of Wanda Holloway. She's a pom-pom mom. You'll know, heard of her, and she she wanted her daughter to be a cheerleader. So just to help out, help her daughter out, she did what most moms would do. She hired a hitman to kill to kill the uh, her daughter's competitor's mother, thinking, well, if you kill her mother, that she won't have the energy to or the interest in cheerleading. Noble, noble effort there. And she got 15 years in prison for it. She hadn't spent a day behind bars, but she's still in prison, chained to her bitterness. Some of you may be like that. There's a Polynesian tribe that hangs at the door of their hut, the mummified heads of their enemies, so that they can keep before their children and generations after them to hate their enemies. They won't let their bitterness go. You cannot be holy to God, separate, become like Him, if you're going to hang on to old hurts and be chained to the past. Let all bitterness and wrath, you know what that means? That means irritable or touchy. Irritable or touchy. And the word anger is the byproduct of being irritable or touchy. It's the flashing up, the flaming up of anger that that is a result of being irritable all the time and touchy with a chip on your shoulder. Let me tell you something. There is nothing any more destructive to your Christian witness than a bad temper out of control. You lose your temper one time in public, I guarantee you it'll take a Lifetime to get it back at witness. My professor at seminary lost his temper with the laundry. It was work, keep doing his shirts. And he went in there and he saw his shirts and they weren't like he wanted them to be, so he lost his temper. And one night he was with his church and they were getting ready to go visiting, and somebody handed him a card. And he took that card and he said, my face turned white, my knees buckled. It was the name of that man in that cleaning establishment. And I'd lost my temper. And he said, I had to hand this card back into one of my deacons and said, I'm ashamed to tell you. But I don't believe I can make this visit, ever make this visit. And he says, "Slander." You know what slander is? It's to speak evil about somebody. Do you know it's a sin to speak evil about somebody, even if what you're saying is, if what you're saying is not the truth? Did you know that it's evil to speak evil about somebody if you're not sure if what you're saying is the truth or not? Did you know it's evil to speak? It's sin a sin to speak evil about somebody if you know what you're saying is the truth. I mean, it's evil. It's a sin to speak evil about anybody, period. Somebody says, well, I'm just doing a little constructive criticism. (laughs) Let me tell you what constructive criticism is. Constructive criticism is when you talk somebody up. Destructive criticism is when you talk somebody down. He said, put away that kind of talk. And this is what you do. Now watch this and we're out of here. This is how you do it. He says, be kind, tender-hearted. word be, be kind is a verb that means to become kind. It's not, it's not, it's not uh, you're not born with it. It's not hereditary. I mean, you become kind. It means to abandon one mental attitude and right then and there begin the opposite. To be kind. Tender hearted means compassionate. Forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven you. Now, watch this. The interesting thing about that word forgiving one another is not the normal word that's used for forgiveness. It's not the tearing up of the IOUs or saying it's okay. What that word means there is to begin to treat graciously everybody around you, even those Who have wronged you because that's what Jesus did he didn't just say it's okay I forgive you but he bestowed upon us his grace he acted kindly toward us in mercy even though we deserved the exact opposite not long ago a couple came into my office from Texas, and they want to get married. Let me tell you something. I have seen it all from Texas coming up here wanting to get married. I mean, but this couple was just, they were delightful. You could tell they were very much in love. And they were in their 50s, maybe mid-50s, early 50s. And and they came in, and we sat down, and and they said, now we need to tell you that we have been married before. We have been divorced. And I said, well, you know, that that doesn't mean that I won't perform your wedding. I mean, that's not a prerequisite. If you've been divorced, I do perform marriages for divorced people. So we talked a little bit. And then this is what they said. Listen to this. They said, we were married to each other. They said, when we got out of high school, we were living in the same little town, we got married. And they said, you know, after we'd been married a couple of years, and we had a, had a child, we'd been married a while, we had children, said, we began to, things began to be, you know, ma- irritate us, and we'd lose our temper with one another, and we'd be angry with one another. And they said, after a while, we split. We got a divorce. And they said, we lived apart for over 20 years. In fact, both of us remarried. We have children by our marriages after the divorce. He said about two years ago, they said, "We, we ran into each other just by chance, they said. And we got to talking and we had been divorced from the second, you know, second time. And we got to talking and this is what we concluded. We missed 23 years of happiness simply because we didn't forbear with one another. We couldn't forgive one another. We couldn't be kind to one another. And they said, we want to get married again, realizing that we've lost most of our life. Now while you're real quiet, I want you to get this. Nobody moving now. I want you to get this. I don't want you to miss what life is about. I want you to walk in a manner worthily of the Lord. And when you do that, you can come to the end and say, we did it like Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, help us today to put away impatience, bitterness, resentment, to put on humility and kindness and Christ-likeness Patience and love and so fulfill the law of Christ. Grant us that we'd be that people worthy of the name we've assumed. For I pray in that name, even Jesus. Amen. Now look here. I want you this morning To consider this invitation, if you're without Christ here, to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. It means to take Him and all that He is and all that He's done for yourself personally. To receive Him and His. To accept Him by faith and trust and commitment. To abandon one way to a new way of faith and trust and commitment. Or perhaps the invitation for you to come and place your life in this church. Let me tell you, I can honestly say it without any contradiction from anybody that knows me. I have never pastored a better fellowship. If you want... We're not perfect. I am, but most of us are not. If, if you want unity and fellowship, this is the place where you can be accepted as, as to who you are, free to fail, in a fellowship of growing love. Or maybe you need to come this morning and recommit your life to Christ. You have described for you what is in your life, and you want to put it behind you. And begin again while we stand to sing. We invite you to come.